0: The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast.
1: Welcome to ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution. Whether you are a thalassemia patient, a caregiver, a partner, or provider, this podcast is meant for you. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kuo, and on each episode, Thalpals, the Alpha Beta Revolution, we'll strive to provide listeners with critical education, the latest scientific updates, and voices from the greater global community of people who are impacted by thalassemia. I'm joined today by my co-host, Larisse Levine. Hello, Larisse. Welcome back to Thalpals.
2: Hi, Dr. Kuo. It's great to be here. I'm very much looking forward to meeting our guests today.
1: Indeed we are. Today we have Shireen joining us from Toronto, Canada. Shireen lives with thalassemia and she's a young professional with very exciting things on the horizon.
3: Hi everyone. Great to be here.
2: Welcome to Palace, Shireen. I'm always excited to meet other people who are touched by
3: thalassemia. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking a little bit more about my journey. And Dr. Ko, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to join ThalPals. I was excited to hear that you had a podcast that goes through the very niche thalassemia that we know and love.
1: Well, Shireen, the pleasure is all mine. From what I understand, is that you have been diagnosed with thalassemia all your life, mm-hmm. and you have had transfusions and treatment ever since you were very young. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the audience, about sort of your early journey with thalassemia?
3: I was actually diagnosed with thalassemia at about five to six months of age. I think my parents, they started to see symptoms that I was having. And from what I recall, my mom explained that, you know, I was looking very pale. I was throwing up. They took me to my pediatrician who had suggested that I be referred to the sick kid's hospital. And from there, I was diagnosed with thalassemia. And um, the toughest part of thalassemia was really the unknown about the disease. Uh, Back in the 80s, when I was diagnosed, there was a lot of trial and error. So we were put in the same unit as the oncology. So it was an oncology hematology unit, I think, on the 7th or 8th floor of the hospital for sick children. So we're going there and getting blood transfusions and we were with patients that were getting chemotherapy treatments. And so there wasn't a lot of segregation between the two. So a lot of the nurses there, they had familiarity with the oncology, not so much with how to deal with thalassemia because again, still very new. Let's put them in this unit with all the oncology patients. So there wasn't much segregation. So we were treated within the same. I think the good thing about as a child, the good thing about thalassemia is, oh, I get to miss a day of school and I get to go to the hospital and I get to play all these games. And Really, my parents protected me when I was younger from all the burden. I think a lot of the burden of thalassemia, they took it on. You know, my mom and dad, they worked nine to five. We came from a very low income home. They had to use their vacation time to take me to the hospital. And they had to see me go through the burdens of getting a blood transfusion, getting poked. And because my veins, I had very poor vascular access. So getting an IV was the hardest thing, I felt like it was the hardest thing. They used to call what they called the vascular access team because I couldn't get it. Getting those pokes two, three times, I think my parents had to witness that and they protected me and I was like, okay, this is supposed to happen. This is normal, this is fine. After you get your needle, you're fine. And I think the toughest part for me growing up with thalassemia is really just the desferal. More than just going to the hospital, it was that desferal. Although I'm grateful for having desferal that saved my life. It was the subcutaneous injections every night and the expectation that you have to take it. And at the time, when I was younger, no one really explained to me the value of taking your Desperol regularly. Or no one explained to me why I had to get my ears checked regularly. No one explained to me why I had to get a MAGA, a mugga done, why I had to go to Cleveland and get that done, or why I had to get liver biopsies. So I was getting all of these tests as a child and no one said, well, you're getting your hearing checked because this is what could happen. Or you're getting a liver biopsy because this is what's going on. This is how we check. A lot of the things in my early childhood was me just following protocol, following what I was told to do, but really not understanding why. And in hindsight, I think that was the biggest issue that I had because as I began to grow as a woman, I started to realize, I'm not getting my period. Why? What's going to happen to me when I'm getting older? No one told me that you may be infertile no one told me that you may have osteoporosis if you don't do this, that, and the other. And so hindsight is always 20, 20 And I learned that my early years, I had it easier because I just followed protocol because I just, I was a yes man in the hospital and I didn't really advocate. And My parents, being immigrants, didn't know how to advocate for me. So I think it was a challenge and it was more of a challenge for them than for me.
1: Thank you for that story. So Shireen, if you have a message for the healthcare professionals that are Listening to this podcast right now, what would you like to say to them?
3: I would say that have patience with families, especially the parents. I know in pediatrics, a lot of times there are a lot of dynamic issues between families and healthcare professionals because families are upset, they're frustrated. Healthcare professionals, they're frustrated with the parents because sometimes, especially my mom, she could be a little bit aggressive. But just to have that compassion, have that empathy and have that patience and really give the time to the families to be like, hey, you may not understand what's going on, so let us sit with you and explain it to you. I think one thing that healthcare professionals need to have is the patience and the time. And I know that a lot of times, respectfully, Dr. Co, we see doctors, they go in, they say two words, and then they're out. They don't want to sit with the patients, or maybe they don't have the time If they don't have that time, book that time, schedule that X amount of time to be like, we need to explain what's going on with your child. We need to explain how this is gonna impact you as a family member and really that social support. So healthcare professionals, be patient, be empathetic and be compassionate because the journey is not easy for the parents especially and the child. That's what I would definitely say and give that time to offer that educational piece that is lacking.
1: Thank you, Shireen.
0: Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including thalassemia, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and sickle cell disease. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com.
2: We were talking a little bit before we started recording about the immigrant experience, and we know that thalassemia affects people worldwide. And in countries such as Canada, Germany, Sweden, thalassemia is not native to those countries. It's native in the malaria belt. So there's a lot of people who are touched by thalassemia, immigrants. As a US citizen, I have, I know the native language, I'm in healthcare, and I have a hard time navigating the system. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about like how that was for your parents who are immigrants to Canada and how, how you think we could make it easier for immigrants dealing with the healthcare system, regardless of what country
3: they're in? Absolutely. Well, my mom is a refugee from Uganda and my dad is an immigrant from Tanzania. And both of them, they were not fluent in understanding the language. They were not fluent in understanding the system itself. I think... It was hard, especially back in the '80s, because they had only heard about the. My mom knew she was minor thalassemia, but she never knew the repercussions of what beta thalassemia really could be about. So, they knew about it, but they really had no knowledge about it. And again, navigating a system where really not just them—they didn't know the knowledge—but even the hospital, even Sick Kids Hospital, and a lot of the physicians—they were, they were still figuring it out themselves. They were still learning. Okay, what is how do we support this disease in our hospital setting? Where do we put these patients? What type of medication is good for them? They themselves were still learning, so I can't really say that it was easy for anybody, let alone my parents. The doctors too, they didn't know what's gonna happen to this child. They were just seeing how research was slowly starting to come up, slowly starting to get on board, but it was still in the works, and a lot of us were guinea pigs. And I think that the challenge again, being immigrant parents is that they just, they don't understand the language, nor do they understand the system. I think what's really important is that for immigrants that come to Canada, just to understand the healthcare system overall, not just thalassemia, but just how to navigate the healthcare system. As an immigrant, this is how it is in Canada. And you know what? One thing I do have to give credit to Canada for is that we are so lucky to be in a universal healthcare system where no matter the status or socioeconomic income or whatever your status is in society, you will have that access to that health care. My parents being low income, we were still given access to treatment, just like anybody who had high income. Am I grateful? Are they grateful? Yes. Was it hard? Yes. And we've come a long way. So I would say today, if immigrants are coming in just to know that they are blessed with the opportunity to have great healthcare in Canada, or America, and to just continue to learn about the healthcare system, and again, how to access it. That's important. Yes, because
2: here in the US, healthcare is an ongoing debate. We don't have universal healthcare and something I think that is a right and not a privilege for every human being. What do you think are like the pros and cons of different systems. I've heard some people in Canada say, oh, I can't get an MRI for the next eight months. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, neither can I since COVID, but I have to argue with my insurance about just about everything. Yeah. So what do you, are there myths or perceptions you have of the system? What do you see are the positive and negatives of each?
3: An obvious positive is that easy access to healthcare, no matter what social class you come from or whatever race, when there is no discrimination when it comes to your healthcare. They don't look at who you are and say, we're not going to give her health care because of this, that, and the other. You get that access. And I think that's the easiest thing. Uh, or that's the most obvious thing, that access. And not only that, but it lowers the cost of access because it's relatively regulated, I would think. The obvious con of the universal health care is you know, that long, those longer wait times. I think that's one thing that we've obviously had challenges with is those longer wait times because you're obviously not paying for it. You'd have to sit in line with everybody else. So I think that's the biggest challenge. However, I think a myth that I think a lot of Americans have is that, oh, come to Canada, you have to wait X amount of years to get this, that, and the other. But no, I had a surgery for my eye yesterday, actually. And to get onto the wait list was not more than six months to get the care that I needed. And Another myth is well, because it's universal, you come into the hospital, it's a poor system. The quality of care is poor, that this is poor. We have renowned hospitals, world renowned hospitals, like Kids, Sick Kids, like Toronto General. Their research center is tip top. And that's all coming from our universal health care. That's all coming from our tax dollars, if you will. And we're still getting pretty good health care here. I walked into Mount Sinai Hospital. I went for my surgery from the minute I walked in, I got the best care. Hi, how are you? What can we do for you? This is how we're going to support you today. And they checked in on me through and through. And I was like, wow, this is the best care I've ever received. And it was in a universal health care where they didn't have to provide that quality care and they did it. So I think really what one thing that I think Canada is finally coming to terms with is that just because we have universal health care does not mean that quality has to be impacted. You can get the best of both worlds. And I think if Canada continues to strive for that, we'll have the best health care ever. But genuinely, if you ask me, the wait times is probably the con, but the pro is that I can be anyone who I want to be and I still get that health care.
2: Well, that's amazing. And I'm grateful for you that you have the access and the care that you need.
3: I look at where my parents, when they were in Africa, they knew of a little boy who was diagnosed with beta thalassemia, and he lived in the suburbs of of, uh, of Tanzania. And he passed away. He passed away because they didn't know how to manage it. They didn't have the treatment for it, and they didn't know what to do with him. So he just he passed away. And so I look at it and I'm like, yeah, sure. I had ups and downs at Sick Kids Hospital, but. If you ask me to compare it to any other parts like India, like Pakistan, like Africa, where they are struggling, I am the luckiest person in the world. And I don't, I would never, ever take my health care for granted. And I would always want to make sure that these, like I said, these immigrants coming in and sitting on the board of directors for the Dalasimia Foundation of Canada, my goal is to really extend to these immigrant families to offer resources, to offer that education, to support them, And if I can extend even beyond to India, to Pakistan, to Africa, that knowledge that, hey, support is there. Keep advocating for their system, their governments to support them through and through. I think that would be very important because we're really lucky.
2: I agree. And I feel like as a person with thalassemia in the U.S., I'm no more deserving than that struggling patient in Nepal or Pakistan, who can't even get safe blood. And and there's nothing that bothers me more as a patient. that Every patient doesn't have our access. So I completely understand what you're saying.
3: Dr. Ko, I'm curious, like, what about practicing medicine for you in Canada?
1: Well, it's hard for me to compare to other systems because other than the Canadian system, the other system that I practiced in was the system in the United Kingdom, Mm -hmm. which, as many of you know, also has a socialized healthcare system. NHS. Yes, exactly, the England NHS. So while I was there, it was really no different than how it was here in Canada. It would be difficult for me to say compared to other systems like in the US, for example. But I mean, there's challenges, right, with every system. I mean, let's just put it this way. There's no uh, God in the paradise. I mean, certainly I'm very thankful that we're in a system where I can offer care to you, for example, Mm -hmm. Shireen. Mm -hmm. where I do not have to consider what insurance you have or whether you are going to the proper HMO or anything like that. But again, you know, we have our challenges. We have our bureaucracies that we have to contend with, the mountains of paperwork that you have to do. Mm. And speaking of paperwork, I'm sure that is also a challenge in your day-to-day job as well, isn't it?
3: Yeah. When I was working as a field case manager for a company, um, we dealt with a lot of paperwork because we I dealt with insurance companies. When patients they don't have access to certain drugs or those drugs they're not covered by the healthcare system, they have to go through in their insurance and their insurance will say, Did they try X, Y, and Z? and you have to appeal them. Through and through, it's like appeal after appeal and the paperwork just adds up and it doesn't stop. We had wrote that appeal for one of my things saying, you know, this drug is X amount of dollars. Why do they need it? And you have to explain the importance or the value of taking this medication for their life. Because what a lot of companies fail to look at or what a lot of coverage companies insurance fail to look at is... If they take this medication, it's going to prevent them from going to the hospital and spending this amount of healthcare dollars on their health. Short-term cost for long-term benefit is something that a lot of times the systems fail to understand, I would say. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I know the burden of paperwork, and I also know the burden of having patients with the paperwork. And one thing I admire the most about being a nurse is that I'm able to see what it's like to be on one side and be on the patient's side. So I get to be on both sides and see, look... As a nurse, they have the burden of bringing home a lot of the stress, and they have the burden of dealing with a lot of patient stress. And on the patient side, they have the burden of waiting and wondering and not understanding why they're not getting the treatment that they're getting right away. Really having that nursing background really put a lot of things into perspective into what it's like to be a nurse dealing with patient and what it's like to be a patient dealing with a nurse. And that's probably why as I got older, I learned to be a lot more patient with my health and with the nurses and with the healthcare system. And that patience is something that a lot of people don't have. Why are we waiting this long at a hospital? Why do we have to wait in the ER for this many hours? Because they don't realize how backed up the ERs are. And they don't realize how bad COVID has been in the hospitals. So I do. So when I walk into an ER, I'm like, I understand why they're taking so long. Because they have this grandma that fell in her hip. <laughs> she's got a lot more going on than me who's came in with a stuffy nose. I think that healthcare background that I have is one I'll never take away and it's one thing I take pride in is really... And that's what I think my thalassemia got me into nursing because I respected the nurses that took care of me as a child and I wanted to be like that. I want to pay it forward. And that's why I sit on the... Board of Directors for the Thalassemia Foundation, where I have the opportunity to pay it forward all the patients that have beta-thalassemia, alpha-thalassemia, and even sickle cell.
1: And indeed, I completely agree. You definitely have paid it forward. And I thank you very much for that. And I think, Shireen, what you have also illustrated is that advocacy is universal and alive, no matter what system you're in, whether it be a universal health care or in a system where you have to pay, etc. It's yes. very much needed in all areas.
3: And one thing I would highlight in that regard is that self-advocacy is very important. Before you advocate for anyone else, always advocate for yourself. And as I got older, I realized the importance of advocating for myself, whether it's for my health, whether it was for my job, whether it was for anything. I have to protect myself through and through and I have to make sure that I am taken care of because no one's going to take care of me the way I should be taking care of me. Not my mother, not my father, not my partner. They're there for me. They're there to support me. But at the end of the day, I have to call the shots on my own health. So what I've learned being in the system, being in Canada, being in the multiple jobs that I've had is that what's going to be best for me, I'm going to make sure that I look out for myself and at the same time, make sure that I'm not burdening anyone or hurting anyone along that process. So really, advocacy for yourself and advocacy for those that are unable to have a voice for themselves is, it speaks volumes. It's invaluable, in my opinion.
1: I feel like we can almost turn what you just said into ad dash, meaning, seriously, meaning... Advocacy starts from oneself. Yeah. Yeah, it starts from the individual.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think to make the world a better place, whether it's through research, whether it's through science, whether it's through technology, we undervalue the benefits of research. We undervalue the benefits of technology. People see technology as a war on humans. Absolutely not. I think it's the greatest thing to happen to us. Without that research, without that technology, without making those positive changes, We wouldn't have the health that we have today. Like for me, I have this oral chelator that I never thought I would have in a million years. I thought I was going to get Desperol for the rest of my life. And I was like, God, I can't do Desperol forever. Now I have this oral chelator. Why? Because of all the research that it took to get us there and all the technology that it took. Those labs, those people in those labs that are working day and night to come out with the greatest technologies. We undervalue them we really undervalue the research process. So anytime there is an opportunity to support research and funding for research, I am a huge proponent of that. I think that is the way to get to where we are today. If they didn't put in that research in the... Funding for the research back in the 80s, we wouldn't have had research in where we are today with the oral collators that we have for the thalassemia. And I know, Dr. Koh, you're a big guy on the research as well. So I really want to thank you for being part of that. It really has been a game changer and a life changer. And if I can really extend my gratitude towards what you've done, it's really, again, it's invaluable.
2: I just wanted to ask you, going back a little ways, you mentioned you were at Sick Kids, and then you transitioned. And that's a huge part of advocating, you learn advocacy, but you had tied in advocacy with transition. So would you talk a little bit about how that was to transition from pediatric to adult and how your care changed, how you've changed?
3: Yeah.
2: how it was for your parents to maybe let go a little bit.
3: <laughs> yeah. The transition, now keep in mind the transition, this happened when I was about 18, so that would have been about 13 years ago. My transition from Sick Kids Hospital to Toronto General was not the smoothest transition. It was a bit rocky, if you will. A lot of it at Sick Kids, they're hand-holding you through the whole process of when you come in to when you leave, and then you come to Toronto General and you're on your own. You have to make your own appointments. You gotta show up. No one's gonna call you beforehand. No one's gonna hold your hand. You gotta figure out your own way when you're there. So to go from a system where they're holding your hand to a system where you're completely on your own, there was no slow transition. It was A, to B, right away. For me, my experience was a little bit on the negative side because I was frustrated. I came in saying, as sick kids, they do this for me. And over here, they're not doing that. Well, they're like, well, tough. This is how we do it here. So I think the tough love that I got from Toronto General was a rude awakening, if you will. And as well, I didn't have my nurse, Nurse Mary, who always gives me my IVs. Now I have these complete strangers who don't know my veins, don't know vascular access the way the sick kids' hospital nurses did. They're poking me two or three times and I'm uncomfortable and I'm frustrated and I'm crying. It took me about six months to a year for me to finally warm up to Toronto General because I did not get the warm welcome that I would really wanted and I didn't get the resources. It was more here's a pamphlet, read it, and we'll see you on the day of. And you've got to book your next appointment every single week. The challenge 13 years ago was not fun. I did not like the transition. And my parents letting go was obviously difficult. But at that point, I was 18. I was going to university at Ryerson, which is a city university. And so I was okay getting to Toronto General on my own. But it was more when I was at Toronto General navigating through this, navigating through that. The social worker was not there. Personally, I didn't get on well with the social worker. So my transition was tough. However, I think 13 years later, they've come a long way. They have great support. They transition you well. And I think they're really listening to their patients now. They have an area where they say, if you have any questions, concerns, or any things you want to write about, let us know. And I think that they're reading them. So transitions are being made. Things are getting better.
2: Yeah, I hear that a lot. And there's no universal way to do transitions. Some people, it ends at 18 and Mm -hmm. you're on your own. There's Mm -hmm. transition programs. Start transition when you're a young child, like steps, learning how to mix your meds, learning how to take your meds. And I think that's the best. I think transition starts when you're young. Yes. Not just cut loose at 18, but it's difficult and it's definitely a challenge.
3: Yeah, and I think one thing I would also recommend is always like for patients, even for the hospitals that are doing that transition take a proactive approach to transition. Even when they're turning 15, hey, you're going to be transitioning sometime when you're 16. This is what you should know for your transition. This is what it'll look like. Hey, do you want to spend a day at Toronto General, maybe going around it, seeing how it is? Give them a day to, to take them to the hospital, walk them through the process, meet the nurses there. You know, we're meeting these nurses and patients are very vulnerable when they come in and they meet new nurses. I think the challenge is always that nurse patient relationship in the hospital setting, and that's a bit an ongoing challenge since I was younger. That nurse patient relationship because these nurses are great, but they're busy as well, and we are vulnerable. We want to find a nurse that we can trust, and we want to stick to that nurse. So when we get a new nurse all the, every single month, it's hard for us. And I've got a lot of scar tissue, so there's I'm like, hey, you can't touch here, you can't touch there. There's too much scar tissue, and they say. I don't know what to do then. And so they're put in an awkward position. I'm put in an awkward position. So really, I think one thing that, again, is lacking in the hospital setting is really that, patient, that patient-nurse that patient relationship. It's, it's hard because, again, vulnerability is one thing that I still struggle with till today, 33 years later.
2: I get it, and it's not ridiculous or whatever you said it might
3: sound like. It's not yeah. important. Or... You know, you don't want to seem like the bad guy. So I think really building that, Having that trust, building that trust is tough. And it's going to get even worse the more scar tissue you have, the more difficult it is to access your veins. It doesn't get easier. And then when you're being asked if you want a pick line or if you want a port-a-Cath, that's hard too because I don't want a port-a-Cath. I don't want a pick line. I want to be able to have the best veins ever, and I can't. Being vulnerable, that'll never end. Having a weird dynamic with the nurses, as much as you know that they work their butts off, that'll never stop. So it's really a catch-22.
2: Yeah. I call thalassemia the catch-22 disease because you get blood, then you have to chelate. I was just recently thinking about changing the day I get blood. And then I'm like, but that nurse isn't here. And she's the one that can get through my scar tissue. And I'm 50. I get it. And it doesn't get easier. And I appreciate what you're going through. I think, gee, I should be used to this. But it, you never really get used to it. Someone's about to poke you.
3: It's hard. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause when I was younger, when I was at sick kids, they're like, where do you like your needle? And I'm like, Oh, anywhere. And they're like, wow, you're such a good girl. Cause you're not picky. And then I got older and I'm like, I need to be picky because yeah, now yeah. they're going through the scar tissue and it hurts. So now I'm like, okay, you can't go in and fish. I don't like fishing. So I'm like, no fishing. And if you fish, then I start crying and I get very emotional. So As I got older, I got a lot more pickier. Now, then I started being a little bit more frustrated with myself. Like, why are my veins like this? So I'm frustrated. The nurse is frustrated. Again, helping those nurses have the patience for us and us having patience for them, it will be an ongoing thing for everyone in that system. It's supposed to get easier, but so long as you're getting poked, it's not easy.
2: Thank you for acknowledging that for all the patients out there that are listening, that Still get anxious when they get poked. It, it doesn't stop. Doesn't stop.
3: And just know that you are so brave for coming every single month or every single, off as often as you do, you're so brave and you are supported by the people that are there. And if you have a problem or if you have any concerns, definitely speak up and say, I'm not feeling good today or I have a problem with this situation. You should feel like you're heard in the system. And if you're not, speak to your doctor there. They should genuinely be there to support you. Right, Dr. Co?
1: Absolutely. And you know what, Lorice, I think Shireen just gave us the next, one of the future topics for a discussion on the podcast, isn't it? Transition. I think we yes. should make that as one of the theme for another one. Yes. For another day. A last question for you, Shireen, before we wrap up. We talked a lot about advocacy. It seems that's the theme of today's podcast. If there is one thing that you think the global thalassemia community should advocate on, what do you think that would be?
3: Education and research. I think those are two very important things globally. I think the education part, whether it's education in Canada, education in rural parts of the world, although thalassemia is a very niche disease, there are a lot of patients that are minor and a lot of patients that are minor don't realize that they're minor then they possibly may have a partner that is minor as well and they may not realize hey i need to actually look into what being a minor is so even though you're not a beta thalassemia patient there are a lot of minor thalassemia it is a very common disease so i think just having that education and really spreading awareness of what thalassemia is and how it can impact you whether you're minor or major as well as continuing to push the concept of research and development and I genuinely think, no matter how hard it is, giving that access to healthcare globally. Global access to healthcare is so important, and it's not easy. And I'm not just saying with thalassemia; I'm saying with all parts of healthcare, global access is gonna be a, an ongoing challenge, but if we can support people globally and help people globally, I think that would be one thing that I think would be the greatest thing that we could do for all of our patients and people in general.
1: Thank you for that, Shireen. And Shireen, I want to thank you for joining us today. And Larice, thank you for co-hosting.
2: Always an honor and Shereen, it was magnificent
3: to be able to talk to you and I look forward to keeping in touch. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast with the two of you and if anybody does need resources or they do need those supports, the foundations, whether it's Cooley's Anemia Foundation, whether it's the Thalassemia Foundation, they have those resources readily available for you. The importance of accessing those are, again, they're invaluable, so go for it.
1: That's all for today's episode. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kuo.
2: And I'm Larice Levine. And I'd like to personally thank you for listening to ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution.
1: Don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. (laughs) Share the show with members of the thalassemia community. ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution is made possible by Agios Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Visit agios.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.